Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Welcome to No Shame on You's 40th podcast. I'm Wendy Singer, Director of Programming for No Shame on You, and today we have an incredible guest with us. We are meeting author Kenneth Nixon. Kenneth just came out with an intense and meaningful memoir called Born into Crisis that I read very quickly and could not put down. Kenneth Nixon Jr. knows firsthand the impact of trauma and what it can have on one's personal life and takes us in this memoir on a powerful journey of his life. He does it uniquely where not only does he intertwine personal stories, but he shares tips, tools, and strategies to better one's own mental health and to make collective change in our nation. A little bit more about Kenneth. He is a pastor, community organizer, and mental health advocate. He also knows firsthand what it means to navigate personal mental health challenges while also navigating a broken system on behalf of a loved one. Kenneth speaks out about the need of reform in the mental health system and works to improve the lives of those affected by mental illness. He's also the founder of the nonprofit justice organization called Justice Now. Um, Kenneth, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. And um, is there anything that you want to share about your, about your, your life and your credentials that I did not share in your bio? Well, first, Wendy, thank you again for having me on your 40th uh, podcast, a great milestone for you all. Uh, I'm actually going to say no. I'm humble in that way from the sense I don't like titles. I really don't actually like my bio read. I just like to be behind the scenes and, and doing the work that I do. So no, I would not add anything to that. Okay. Well, then let's get right to it. Tell us a little bit about your incredible book, Born into Crisis and some of the experiences you share in the book. Yeah, so Born into Crisis really was um, a labor of love, as as so many people would understand who've gone through the journey of writing a a book. Um, But it was also my way of amplifying at this moment in time um, when our country is in a deep crisis when it comes to mental health amplifying through my personal story, not only that my story is not unique, um, but that there is also a path to get at uh, the community and much more broader systemic changes that are necessary to begin to not only destigmatize mental illness and addiction. And I say those two together on purpose because mental illness can feed addiction and addiction can feed mental illness. So destigmatize mental illness and addiction, but also get at the fundamental um, systemic issue of mental health being criminalized um, and get it on the path of decriminalizing it to where people get on paths of treatment and not ER rooms and incarceration. The book 
is incredible. I couldn't put it down. Um, it it really shares some, you know, you talk about it talks about your personal journey, and then it really goes mm -hmm. in to the greater um, systemic problems that you just mentioned in our nation and just in your life. In your own life, when did you realize that it wasn't just your personal story, but a bigger issue? that you wanted to tackle and make your mission, your life's mission? That's a great question. Um, with all things, you um, go on a journey of self-discovery um, uh, and curiosity around whatever your core interests are or whatever fire you have in your belly. And for me, it was a journey that um, from childhood up to adulthood that really culminated after my father's passing from cancer in 2019, where for um, the chaotic and traumatic upbringing that I had and uh, the trauma I dealt with, the one constant in my life, the one stabilizing force, even as an adult. Now, at this point, <laughs> I'm married. I have children. I have my own <laughs> life I'm living. But to, to lose him really was destabilizing in a way that I never anticipated. And it made me really grapple with some of, of the things I may have um, had, but never dealt with in terms of mental health, with anxiety and uh, depression and, and some of those other things. But it also uh, allowed me to take a deeper dive into the more systemic issues that perpetuate historic and generational traumas that, that go from one generation to the next and really see how can I turn um, my story into action in a meaningful way um, that creates change, but how can I do it in a way that I create more of a we and not an I, right? Because Kenneth by himself cannot uh, impact the mental health system alone in my local community or at the state level or at the national level. But how can I use my stories and connect with others and create this collective we, this collective relational power um, that gets at some of those systemic changes? So um, my goal with it was to have one big relational introduction. Essentially, this is who I am in very specific stories around mental health. Uh, and here's the call to action. It's a way for me to help those who are interested in this work see why I have the fire in my belly for, for that call to action, where my core interest comes from. And it's able to connect the two together so someone has a sense, well, maybe I, I have that same passion or I know a loved one or, or a friend or a colleague who's who's dealt with some similar circumstances that did not know a path forward to get at change. And I wanted to make sure people walked away, not only with a story that was therapeutic in part for me, but they walked away with a plan that they can customize and to fit what, what they're comfortable with, but they walked away with a plan of action. I love that. That, that was something that was so different about this book. Um, I'm an avid biography and memoir reader, and I have never, this is the first time I came across that model. And I thought it was fantastic because you discussed 
and shared so many hard things that were happening in your life growing up and the ripple effect that it had on your your family and other loved ones and with the community and you sometimes when you read hard things you it's frustrating because you want to do something and and right here in one book you you give tangible items on what people can do so I'll ask you a little bit about that later I have a couple more questions just about the story you know can can you share with our listeners just a little bit about what you experienced growing up um Mm-hmm. So they can hear a little bit without without giving away the memoir, you know, because they're mm-hmm. going to read some great stuff. But just a little bit about about um, your life growing up. Yeah, for me, just like most um, most uh, children or families, right? It goes to the concept. Like I tell people, I did not know I was poor until someone told me I was poor. Right? Uh, I did not know some of the experiences that I went through, uh, I did not know it was abnormal. Um, I just thought this is things that people go through. It's not until you get much older and and allow your curiosity and your own critical thinking ability to kind of explore some of those things. But growing up, um, the book Literally Born Into Crisis talks, (laughs) that title really is the birth story. Um, in which my father found me on um, the living room floor in my mother's apartment. She was going through uh, uh, a psychosis uh, mental health episode right after my birth. And um, she had given birth to me and I was lying on the floor wrapped in newspaper um, with the umbilical cord still attached, but she tried to to sever it on her own. Uh, And I was suffering from um, what is known as Thorazine withdrawals, and Thorazine was um, uh, antipsychotic medication that was prescribed, um, particularly in the 70s and the 80s. I don't believe it's utilized at this point or it's in limited use. Um, But I was suffering withdrawals literally (laughs) at birth from an antipsychotic medication. Uh, And um, that's where the title comes from, because from the moment of birth into adulthood, I, I've been grappling with crisis, whether it's physical or mental. And it's really that journey from crisis to advocacy. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it, it, you interweave so many um, interesting memories from your life. How did you pick which stories to share? I, mm. I'm just curious. Yeah, there's and, snapshots. And, and, there's yeah, snapshots that, into your life. <laughs> that's a great question as well, right? Because everyone's life, my life included, is much more than just those stories that are in the book. Mm-hmm. And I and I mentioned in the book that cherry picking stories was very difficult um, because all of this happens within uh, a context that is much bigger um, than than one story or one book. But I had to find the stories that fit consistently with the thread of mental health reform. Uh, So I had to be very selective in picking stories that highlighted not only some of the child-adolescent traumas, um, but some of the journey of my mother in terms of 
being in Christ, continual crisis, but also weaving in some of those soft generational inherited traumas of that have been passed down where you're not taught how to healthily cope with different situations because your parents never knew how to cope with things or they had his uh, historical traumas that they were dealing with that um, their unhealthy coping mechanisms or, or things passed down to you and it just created a cycle. So I had to find stories that fit specifically within the narrative that tied to the call to action. And there's so many stories that I wanted to put in there that would have made this a much more rich memoir that would have added the depth to it that people typically look for uh, when you're looking at a memoir over, over uh, someone's life. But it would have destroyed it would have taken away from that focused approach of tying um, crisis and trauma and mental health to the call to action for reform. So you talk about growing up, you know, you're the trauma that you experienced and, and you mentioned here um, and talked about in the book, historical trauma versus generational trauma, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, is a very fascinating um, topic, certainly generational trauma. Um, my past work, I worked at Illinois Holocaust Museum and we often talked um, about the general tra generational trauma that survivors pass down um, to their children, their grandchildren, now great grandchildren. Um, can, you, can you talk to our audience a little bit about, in your own words, what the, difference and, and link to historical versus generational trauma is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it can be confusing because they're, they're similar in a lot of aspects, um, but they can also tie together. So from a historical standpoint in terms of trauma, uh, if you think of um, the Holocaust, if you think of apartheid in South Africa, if you think of slavery and Jim Crow, United States. If you uh, think of Hurricane Katrina, you think of uh, the mass shootings that are happening in, in schools and across the country. Those can become historical traumas uh, that um, generational um, uh, effects take place. So historical traumas can feed generational traumas, um, but usually it's um, events or times in history of natural disaster or man-created um, uh, di uh, disasters or tragedies um, that impact yeah. not just the, the affected generations, but their descendants because they pass down those hurts, those griefs, those pains. Uh, and then it becomes generational uh, in terms of um, passing down um, not being a, uh, healthy habits around coping and dealing with stress and dealing with anxiety and not talking openly uh, about uh, things that you're experiencing. Uh, so historical traumas can um, feed into generational traumas, but generational traumas uh, can be something that's not linked to historical or major events, um, but they both um, create an ecosystem that can keep families trapped in cycles 
of trauma silently for generations. And what advice do you have for, I mean, this is a big problem. It's a big problem. And I know it's not a simple answer at all, but just your thoughts on, on what we can do for those who are experiencing generational trauma. So what I would say in terms of advice, uh, one is to remain curious. And what I, what I mean by curiosity um, is explore what you're, you're feeling, uh, explore your family history, understand why, um, the why uh, around a lot of things that, that you do in your life, um, that your family has done. I give a, a good example, my grandmother, uh, Elizabeth, um, a lot of folks uh, in my family would always say, well, Granny's very soft-spoken and quiet and reserved um, and is a very gentle spirit. And a lot of aspects, uh, I, would, I would agree with that. I would say yes. But that's only like a surface understanding if you're not curious enough to dig a little deeper. Uh, and in, in my own context, um, my, I'm giving away a part of the book here, uh, but it, it helps to explain uh, what I'm getting at. Um, the story around my um, uncle uh, William um, back in uh, 1973 um, was murdered by a stray bullet at the age of 12 uh, in East Baltimore. And he died in my father's arms, who was only 16 at the time. Uh, and fast forward three and a half or four weeks before my birth in the 80s, my uncle um, Frederick passed away from uh, a morphine poisoning, and he died in my father's arms about four weeks before I was born. Uh, and you look at East Baltimore during the 50s and 60s when she was uh, there trying to uh, raise her children. My father had to drop out of high school and you have the drugs, the crime and all the different types of stuff. And then you have her losing two of her children at, at a young age. I never heard those stories from my grandmother. I got those stories from my, my aunts and my dad. My grandmother never told those stories. And I would have never known those stories if I didn't ask my uh, other family members. And my point to that is, yes, she had a gentle spirit and she was soft-spoken and quiet, but she probably had a lot of grief and trauma that instead of healthily dealing with it and talking about it, she just kept it in and kept moving because that's what she knew how to do. That's what she was taught to do. Uh, and probably talking about it from her perspective, um, was not something she was ready to grapple with. But no one was curious enough um, to see if there was something more there that she needed support with. And But we will never know because my, my grandmother passed away in 2006. But that's, that's what I mean by remain curious. What you think is normal and sweet per se and all of that, there may be more behind that. And be curious to find out the why. I think that's excellent, excellent perspective. And I, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, you don't know yet. You don't know what's behind the layers. Um, mm -hmm. 
Well, speaking of family, you mentioned your family. I, I wanted to ask, did, what, what was your family's reaction to you releasing the memoir? I can imagine it brought up a lot of feelings. Um, and, and just how did that go? Well, just like any other 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 family, when they find out someone's writing a book, it's like, what you putting in there about me? I'm like, you're <laughs> not even in my book. <laughs> but it was, they understand the advocacy standpoint. Now, what I did do is um, for some of the tougher pieces, um, I did, as I mentioned, change the names of some of my siblings to protect their privacy. Um, but um, by and large, the family understood that it was in the context of advocating for changes and systemic changes in mental health reform. Um, and then it shifted from, well, I helped you on this story and told you this. Am I going to get an acknowledgement in the back of the book? I'm like, OK, I'm not going to write like 10,000 names in the back of the book. <laughs> Yeah. But they, they were very supportive from the standpoint of if this helps to reduce stigma, to break cycles, and to get to a place where we treat mental health as health, then it's worth it. Yeah. How about your mom, Ramona? So she does not have the functioning or capacity to... Um, fully digest and understand the full context of what I am writing, uh, explaining it to her. Um, she, she understands the concept of uh, I'm writing a book and it's going to be in there, but really having that critical thinking ability to really have um, a thought out uh, opinion is, is not within her control right now. Yeah. Well, I know I know she would be very proud of you and your dad mm -hmm. in heaven. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not a religious mm -hmm. person, but I'm a spiritual person. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I, I, I'm envisioning him with his chest puffed out and just so proud <laughs> of you um, for what you, what you are doing for the community. Um, my mom, when I was a kid, used to always say, when I get out of the car, go out into the world, broaden your horizons and make the world a better place. And you, you truly do that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I know they're proud of you. Um, at the end of the book, you talk about these actionable items that people can mm -hmm. take. You do it, you do it throughout, but at the end, there's, there's the call to action without, without spoiling, um, the book. Can you give our listeners a little bit, a little tidbit or a small takeaway teaser mm -hmm. of, of, of some of the things you describe there? Yeah. So, so what I described there is uh, um, fundamental understanding that um, everybody comes at this issue or any other issue from different perspectives and angles, and not everyone is meant to uh, jump up and be out in front uh, talking to legislators, talking to leaders of, of health care and, and, and pushing from that perspective. Some people are more comfortable um, doing the research or showing up when you need them to show up to be uh, a supportive face in the audience when um, you're doing some of those things. What I try to do is lay out a path that says there's a seat at the table for everyone. 
and how you come at it is entirely up to you. My only ask is that you actually show up. I don't care what lane you pick, but I do ask that you show up. And showing up could mean that you, you're writing letters and you're making phone calls, or you're just showing up to be supportive, or you're giving of your money uh, to people who are actually on the ground doing this kind of work. But if we're going to build a collective, um, and, and I mentioned in the book that the concept that I found to be most effective uh, in creating systemic change is the concept of collective power. Uh, and collective power is organized people and organized money. You also talk about, well, first off, I love I love the practicality. And for our listeners, it is like a choose your own adventure. Which way do you want to go? You know, which way? And, and you lay out practical tasks and items and, and things that people can do because um, not one mold fits, fits a certain way. So I, I love that piece. Um, as far as the collective power, you you talk about um, your work as in the interfaith community, um, and I just think it sounded it, it's it sounds very powerful. And can you tell us a little more about the work you do in this in this area and and why you believe interfaith work is one of the um, powerful ways to get things done? Absolutely. As you hear, hear my three-year-old, um, one of the things about interfaith work that I find so refreshing and powerful uh, is the sheer ability for me to connect with so many different people of faith, spiritualities, different walks of life who may be coming to issues from different perspectives, but we all have the same thread of being either frustrated with how things are going or not fully um, understanding how we can get at some of the changes that we're seeking. Uh, so interfaith organizing allows me to talk to the educator who uh, uh, is overwhelmed with the number of children she has in, in uh, their classroom or the number of children he has in his classroom uh, that are dealing with mental health issues or challenges and they don't know how to uh, help their students uh, uh, in those situations, or the counselors at the school who may be inundated with uh, caseloads, but they're not trained to be mental health therapists, but they're more and more taking on kind of this role. Uh, then you talk about law enforcement who comes at it from a different um, perspective where uh, they signed up to for public safety careers, but um, a lot of them are ending up having to be um, uh, crisis intervention trained uh, because they're dealing with a lot of mental health calls and having to go to emergency rooms and transport people uh, instead of being involved in public safety. And they want out of that and want mental uh, health professionals to be dealing with those type of individuals. Or you can talk about faith leaders who are, are really... Uh, out of, of their, their, their lane in terms of uh, uh, counseling because some of the things we're seeing really needs clinicians or licensed therapists to really deal with some of our congregants, right? So you have all of these different angles in situations that are different in what they're dealing with, but the common thread is the mental health system. 
And it's bringing everyone together to create this collective, hospitals, uh, law enforcement, faith leaders, educators, students, teachers, uh, everybody either is dealing with mental health challenges personally, they know someone that's dealing with mental health challenges personally, or they can relate. And it's creating um, the necessary collective, the we, to really get at something transformational that will make the world just a little bit more better. With all of this, I have to go to a personal question. Kenneth, it's a lot. It, you do a lot of work and it's hard work and it's draining and it's um, so necessary, but it can be tough on your own mental health. Um, everything from the community organizing to um, the pastoral care that you give to your community to to writing out your person your stories and rehashing things. How what do you do to take care and support your mental health? And um, yeah, I would love to hear that to hear that as a, a man, a black man, and um, what do you do? Well. That, that's another great question, because even in the midst of doing all of the community organizing and the things that I do, uh, I'm very aware of making sure I have a trauma-informed approach uh, in how I go about it to make sure I'm not triggering others, but I'm also not triggering myself. I, I mean, ever since my father passed, I, I, I kid you not, depending on the, the how how uh, sensitive a commercial is, I start tearing up. So it's it's one of those things where I have to make sure uh, that I'm mindful in terms of the questions that I ask, that I'm sensitive to um, the responses I'm receiving from people, both verbal and nonverbal. You usually get a lot more cues from the nonverbal than the verbal. So it's making sure that you're very in tune with what the how the person's reacting to the conversation, but also preparing yourself for if they start sharing something that may be triggering uh, to you and, and may impact your own mental health. So it's a, a constant of me of trying to implement a trauma-informed approach in what I'm doing. But as I've gotten into this, I've actually found new hobbies that kind of help me decompress. So I've become a big Lego person. So my son does it because that means he gets more Legos. Uh, but they and have more time the, with you. Yeah, more time with me. <laughs> so I've become a big Lego person in building. Like they, we go to Target and they, um, they have these adult Lego sets where you can build like the Taj Mahal or the White House or yes, some of the the other things. So I get a bunch of those. I'm working on a pyramid, an Egyptian pyramid right now. But it's we uh, have it's, the we have Soldier Field in our house, which uh -oh. is the home of the Chicago Bears that my husband did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really finding those things that yeah. allows me to decompress and kind of take my mind off of it. I also, uh, I didn't really believe in it well when, when I was younger. Now I'm like, I don't want like background noise when I'm trying to sleep, but I can, it works wonders having like a rainstorm or whatever kind of white noise people like, like at night. And it and it's worked so much. My wife consistently puts it on now to help her. So <laughs> Like every night we go to sleep, I go to sleep hearing rainstorms, I wake up to rainstorms. So um, it's just finding those things that help your mind kind of reset to come down to decompress and kind of center center your spirit 
um, as you're doing this type of work because this type of work is not for the faint of heart in, in the sense that it, it, it can wear, it can be tiring, especially if you're doing it from a position of passion and care and love and you pour and pour into it, you have to find moments to recharge and pour into yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing some of your some of your tools. Um, back to to the book, I had a, I had something that I read that I wanted to ask you about. You, you talk a lot about um, a, a very challenging pro problem in the United States, and that is the intersection of mental health and incarceration and um, the decriminalization of, of mental health in this area. And at one point you share a fact that I thought was, that frustrated me. And so I just wanted to hear your thought on it. Um, the fact that you shared was the cost to incarcerate individuals um, in, the, in the prison systems, um, justice system versus hospitalizing them and giving them um, treatment um whether whatever that form may be is is it's much more expensive i think you actually gave some numbers to to um on that um it if that is the case to me that's a little i know it's a very complicated problem and an issue but that is a very and i try to see all sides i try to you know figure that out but that frustrated me what do you think on that topic? And why, why do you think that we don't do more there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so as you mentioned, it is a very complex and um, nuanced piece of the puzzle. And I tried to strike a balance in the book of doing the pros and the cons versus uh, for decriminalization so people can kind of weigh out um, kind of what's out there in terms of research and um, uh, talking. But if you look at the system as it's currently constructed, it's working as it's intended to work, right? You have a lot of jails and prisons in this country per capita. How many crisis receiving centers are in this country? Not even close to the same amount of um, jails that are in this country. So just from an infrastructure standpoint, you don't have the infrastructure for somewhere to go outside of the local jails. So that's where uh, I'm really pushed for crisis receiving centers as one of the critical infrastructure components to get in place, right? So you got 988 um, to be able to have someplace for someone to call, but we need to have someplace for them to go. And right now that option right now really is only the local jails or emergency rooms. Uh, and until we get the community-based infrastructure in this country in place uh, as an alternative path straight into treatment, we're going to still perpetuate and continue to send people through the criminal justice system uh, or into emergency rooms. And the reason why it costs more, let's, let's look at this. You have a law enforcement officer who's in, in their, their, their cruiser or what have you, that has to pick that individual up. Um, there's costs associated with that. Then you take them into booking and processing in a local jail. There's costs associated with that. And then you have the sheriffs that are there. You have uh, all of the other, like the, the, the sale, the food, 
uh, everything that goes into incarcerating an individual versus someone going to a crisis receiving center, going straight into treatment where they're dealing with a clinician and a psychiatrist um, and they're in um, either 23-hour um, crisis uh, uh, care or if they need a little bit more intensive inpatient treatment, they go over to the three to five day short stay where they get inpatient treatment for um, the episode or the issues that they're dealing with uh, and they don't go into the criminal justice system. Uh, so the, the short answer to that, even though I took a scenic route, uh, is that we don't have the infrastructure in place in this country to have an alternative right now. Um, and in, in order to get at transitioning that system from criminalization to treatment, um, we have to invest heavily in putting the infrastructure in place to make that possible. I know one of the things you write in, in, the, mem in the memoir, in the book, is it's important to be patient. Um, it's so hard. For people, it's that is hard. Um, but we're if we fast forward twenty years, what is your hope? What is your dream? Um, what do you, what, what do you think the landscape will be? Well, in twenty years, I am I am hopeful in twenty years that uh, there will be significantly more infrastructure uh, uh, around community based crisis services, in particular crisis receiving centers that are in communities uh, that people can walk in off the street uh, if they're feeling anxious or feeling uh, 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 or feeling that they're going into an episode and get the, get immediate treatment. And that's the, the key point there get immediate treatment. And it could be that they need just an hour or two to talk to someone and then they go home. Or it could be they actually need those three to five days, uh, but they actually have somewhere in the community where they can go to and get immediate treatment. Because right now, you do not get immediate treatment when you go into an ER room because an ER is meant for physical emergencies, not mental health emergencies. Uh, so you typically are waiting hours, if not days, before you actually get treatment. And then that's even worse in a local jail because... Uh, in the context of uh, Virginia, and I'm sure it's probably the case in other states and jurisdictions, uh, those jails cannot, in some cases, administer those medications without a court order um, because you get into various things around HIPAA and people's individual rights and liberties. Uh, so if you're waiting for a court order in a jail to help uh, get, get medications to someone, that could be days, if not weeks, where someone is just in crisis without the treatment that they're supposed to get. Uh, so these crisis centers really are life-saving solutions that are also cost-saving solutions uh, if we just have the will and the appetite to act on it. Yes, and if you're if you want to know how to act on it, then 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 read this book um, again with with the call to action. Um, we're getting close to our end. So before before anything else, I want to know where your book was released this month, May, Mental Health Awareness Month. But for our organization and for you, Mental Health Awareness Month is every month. We know this. Um, where can people get your book? Uh, you can get my book anywhere where books are sold online. You can go to Barnes & Noble. Um, 
You can go to Amazon uh, to, to purchase my book. You can uh, also go to uh, the website for your local independent bookstore um, if you wanted to purchase the book, but it's available anywhere online. And as I found out last couple of weeks, it's a little weird, but you can now Google me and it'll pop up. So I'm adjusting to be, people being able to Google my name, um, but uh, you, you should be able to get the book anywhere they're sold online. How can people reach out to you if they want to connect with you, um, whether it's for a speaking engagement or to community organize with you? What's the way? Yep. So people can um, connect with me on social media, particularly Instagram at Kenneth underscore Nixon Jr. Um, on Instagram, or you can connect with me through my website at authorkennethnixon.com. Uh, and either one of those ways are um, uh, very good ways to connect with me uh, as I'm going about doing this work, as so many of you are. Uh, and I, I look forward to continuing this work as a part of a big collective, because that's what we are. We are part of a big collective. And finally, what's next? Is there anything we should look out for <laughs> on, that, that's coming down the pike in, in your career? Yes, so I'm still doing the community organizing. We're looking at expanding um, um, and creating a larger network. Um, we met with uh, some other organizations where um, throughout the country and uh, to create a bigger we uh, as we're trying to connect and, and spread this model of systemic change uh, th throughout the country. But in terms of an author, I do have a second book that I'm halfway through writing. <laughs> um, and, and this book really um, deals with the, the hustle culture um, in our society and how um, the American approach to work is driving more folks into mental health issues uh, and is creating a society that is valuing work more than human connection. Uh, and it's really getting at the things, and I mentioned actually in my memoir that I was kind of <laughs> going yeah. into this, uh, it, is, it is one of the avenues where a lot of people, you uh, work has become their addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's leading to stress, to burnout, to other things that are uh, leading to other mental health challenges because people are chasing material things of value or the concept of the American dream. And I really want to start helping people to reorient to valuing connection with family, valuing relationships with individuals really taking the time to access what's important to them and understanding that productivity and output in a work environment can't be what's the most fulfilling thing in your life. Uh, otherwise, you will end up at a place um, where you feel disconnected and lonely and wondering um, um, wondering what where you went wrong. And I really want to help people to step back from kind of a hustle culture. I love that. And, um, you know, per, that resonates with me personally. So I can't wait till that book comes out. <laughs> and I'd like to do another podcast. Is that okay? That's okay. Are you in? I'm in. <laughs> but I think that's unbelievable. I, you know, I remember this, just a snippet. It's so important, like that 
that it is the culture to go so fast and move and grow and move up and 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 it takes a toll on mental health and i remember i was speaking to someone um this was it took me a long time to figure this out for myself too because i struggle with being the workhorse type and wanting to do it all and passion is a powerful force that can't be stopped but i remember talking to a friend and i was like what's next for you what's happening and she said you know what i'm happy where i am i don't need to be the boss because I have more time, you know, with my kids, my family. And it was the first time I heard someone say that. And it, it was like an aha moment because we're all on this track of more, 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 more. And there needs to be a cultural shift around that as well, I think, um, in our society. So I'm excited yes. to see that. I'm excited to see that, Kenneth. Um, uh, thank you for it, your time. It, yes, yes. I appreciate you for, uh, for having me on. And I I look forward to future conversations and, and collaboration as well. Awesome. We're going to stay in touch and um, we'll see you soon. Thank you.